0: Welcome to another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Daniel Hanley, and joining me on the other line, now that we've bound him to stone, stuck in this podcast forever, is John McMahon.
1: Our worst places to be uh, banished to for eternity, although it depends which half of the podcast we're talking about.
0: <laughs> That's exactly why I was laughing.
1: Now, Danielle, we're not alone here today because also joining us on the other line, she's just back from horse girling at a party on the Nile. It's Regan Levitt. Megan, welcome to Not Quite Great Books.
2: Thank you. I'm really it's so honored to be
1: here. <laughs> <laughs> so Megan, in addition to a uh, horse girl cred, uh, is the assistant director of the Learning Center here at Sydney Plattsburgh and my friend and colleague. And we're really excited to have you here to talk about Moon Knight. Welcome. Um,
2: I was really excited that you
0: allowed me to weasel my way onto this podcast.
1: Perfect. Great. Here for it.
0: Totally here for it. I, I already feel excited about this episode.
1: Yeah. All right. So what are we talking about today?
0: Okay. So today we are talking about Moon Knight, Episode 3, The Friendly Type. It is directed by Mohamed Diab, who is the lead director for the series. And it's written by Bo DeMaio, Peter Cameron, and Sabir Purzada. And John, why don't you give us the IMDb summary?
1: Certainly. With Mark in the forefront and Harrow ahead, Mark and Layla navigate Cairo for intel. Mm -hmm. Underwhelming. Mm -hmm. Short.
0: Sweet. Doesn't really tell us all that much. (laughs) Seems right.
1: Yeah. So, Regan, we'll maybe throw the question to you. To uh, you can defer if you want. We see in this episode the depiction of the council of the human avatars of the gods. Their meeting as the Aeneid. What did you make of that scene, or the multiple scenes we get with the gods collected?
2: Um, I think it's again kind of interesting because um, so much about the MCU is trying to place. Marvel comics, very fantastical in the real world. And this is yeah. clearly like a white man who is out of his depth. And um, <laughs> I uh, yeah. um, also, though I don't want to erase that canonically, uh, Mark is Jewish. Um, so I think that's, again, kind of showing this sort of man who lives in the very real world experiencing something um, he had no idea even existed.
0: Yeah. And I think like, we get a little bit of that and we'll talk about this a little bit more later, but we get a little bit of that in like, cause it's Steven that, that, that goes in or like it's as Steven, right. Right. He's like seeing the inside of the, of the great pyramid and he's kind of like freaking out a little bit. So yeah, that I think like we could talk about it as like the Western gaze, perhaps not even (laughs) like Oscar Isaac's like, non-whiteness and like, um, Mark Spector's canonical Jewishness, maybe like talking about it as the Western gaze just like helps get us out of that conundrum a little bit. But like, we see that sort of on full display and then there's like, there's the, the fighting between, um, like Mark Steven and Conchu sort of like complicating that story.
1: And also, I mean, this, in some ways, the, one of the most interesting things about this episode to me, like outsider that I am to the MCU or to the show or to this podcast when we're talking about this show, <laughs> is that I found some of the other gods and their human avatars more intriguing possible characters. Like, I want this, I wouldn't want this as a spin off, I would want this as the main series of the person who is representing the god of love and music or the goddess of yeah. love and music. Right? Like, that was an interesting character who clearly has some sort of pre-established relationship built in with Mark, if not with Steven. And mm-hmm. then, clearly, then, is tied back to the relationship between the respective gods or goddesses that they are avataring for. So it was different, I think, to get to see not these gods themselves, but these gods as they have been mediated through the humans that are representing yeah. them or bringing them forward.
0: We're getting... Right? We we get Kanchu like, we get Mark, Mark and Steven sort of interacting with Kanchu I think it would have been interesting to have at least, like, versions of the other gods, like, in the sort of kanchu cartoony space, you know? Just, like, even seeing them, there was something. I think, like, I, I like, loved this scene, but one of the things that I struggled with was, like you only get that small moment where, where each of them seem to be taken over by their gods. Um, and it would have been, I think it would have been nice to like more fully develop this a little bit, which I, I think jumps onto your point about like the backstory of some of the other characters in the scene.
1: Yeah. I mean, and I would have, I think preferred the version of that scene where just all the gods and goddesses are there in their equivalence of the ways that Kanchu is visually represented in the show.
2: Yeah. I also think that would have been a really interesting thing to do, considering. Like, I'm thinking also since John brought up horse girling, um, I was an <laughs> Egyptology kid growing up, and that was me too, uh, right, too. Exactly, <laughs> right? There's the Greek, there's always the Greek mythology kids, the Egyptology kids. You know, yeah. sometimes we're the uh, same. Sometimes they're the same, um, and thinking about like of people who weren't Egyptology kids growing up, like people who weren't a cultural there. touchstone for understanding this, this pantheon, yeah. not to compare it too much to Greek mythology it's very different. Um, because I believe Khonshu is totally m- made up, but, um, we see Osiris at play yetzi all and, um, just Yeah. Already. Um, yeah. and I think the and ones that are always, Discussion in our current world. Or maybe like we compare things to maybe Horace or. Um, yeah. I feel like. Yeah. It's up a lot.
0: Yeah. And I think Isis is mentioned in uh, her. I, I believe her avatar is one of the, the people. Yeah. Or There's there literally a an racist,
1: uh, statue up here yeah. in my office <laughs> where we're recording right now that a student <laughs> brought to me. Uh, an, an Egyptian student brought to me. So, like, less cultural appropriation <laughs> than it otherwise would have been. So.
0: so, I was also an Egyptology kid and also a Greek mythology kid all at the same time. And when I was watching this episode, like... There was something that struck me about the scene with the Aeneid inside the Great Pyramid that felt very, like, Iliad-adjacent, where most of the time, and I will admit that I watch the movie Troy on average once every two weeks. Why (laughs) Um, wouldn't you? Exactly. Exactly, Regan. Exactly. (laughs) I've never felt so understood in my whole life. (laughs) You're welcome. But... But most of the time when people are talking about the Iliad, we're talking about Achilles, we're talking about Hector, we're talking about the sort of, like, the, the the mortal war that unfolds between the Trojans and the Greeks. And, like, the Iliad, there's so much in the Iliad that is just, like, the gods, like, being petty with one another. And there was something about this scene in Moon Knight that, like, made me want to see an enactment of the of the gods being petty in the iliad like there was something parallel there so thinking about the way in which like Kanchu's relationship with the other gods which seems to be like quite fraught for like reasons that they lay out here that that is then impacting like the actual lives of Mark slash Stephen and Harrow and all of these others, right? Like that, that, that those things are like deeply intertwined. There's something incredibly consistent in terms of mythology about that.
1: But then here in the show, and you two as uh, the Egyptology folks and uh, Greek mythology experts, folks, <laughs> literature folks, uh, uh, here that. on this podcast, it's a more direct or at least less mediated relationship between like the meddling or the bullshit of the gods and their capriciousness or arbitrariness or actions upon the worlds and the way that that intersects with humanity and Moon Knight than there is in the Iliad or there is in much of Greek mythology, right? Okay.
0: Yeah, I think so.
2: (laughs) I think that's a fair assessment. Right. They're also not doing the Thor thing, which that's our only other in in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, is, well, we know Thor is a god, ostensibly. He's, you know, just a long-lived alien or whatever, Um, you know, who shows up and is very active and, like, you know, interacts with humanity in a very kindly way versus this is a bit more menacing.
0: Yeah, the other, like, the other um place i was thinking in the MCU is the Eternals which like they're not gods mm-hmm. but they're also not mortal right so they're like that something in between where like they do have this sort of like overseeing kind of power that we see in these gods and so like we have a couple of these touchstones in the MCU but like nothing like this right like we don't have a ton of stuff in the MCU like beyond the like mortal and like some mortals have powers, right? And you're like Regan, like you're saying Thor is one of the the exceptions to that rule, but it's like it's an exception to a a series of pieces of literature that are mostly following like various forms of empowered like humans.
1: So there's, there's a point at which all of the avatars are talking and there's this question raised of the extent to which they are active in or meddling within human affairs. Mm -hmm. They explain human avatars, the voices of the gods through the human avatars, right? If I'm I'm understanding correctly, and if I'm not, please correct me, like are saying that they're seeking not to meddle in human affairs. And so... There's that that is happening in this show and like my uh, more limited or scant knowledge of the MCU more broadly, right. Is, you know, the superheroes are not themselves gods if I've had this correct. Uh, But they're obviously incredibly active and very direct interventionist in the affairs of humans. So like, this is a question certainly for either of you, like, is there any broader kind of cultural significance either to what Moon Knight is doing by making these somewhat less interventionist, extra human figures compared to the like broader superhero assemblage or coterie of the MCU.
0: Bringing in figures who likely have the ability to like transform human life on a large scale. We, we see them sort of halt that or limiting that. I, I see it going in two ways. One, it like illustrates how significant or important like the meddling of superheroes is right like that there needs to be figures that take on that role so that's like one way to think about it or a different way to think about it is is thinking about like is it possible to to like read this text as a as a place where we then see the space of human agency unfold and that's maybe a more generous reading than we we want to give but i think like both of those are possible
2: I'm thinking slightly differently in like a way of how the West interacts with religion versus Mm. maybe some presumptions of how the, the East big quotation marks around the East or other non-Western cultures do. I think there's a lot about specifically like American religious fervor that wants a God everywhere and in everything and interacting a lot versus maybe this is the show showing us like, this is not, how our culture works necessarily, where maybe the gods are not involved in um, us going grocery shopping and deciding what flavor of Pop-Tarts we want to get, or um, you know, um, hopefully if we pray hard enough, we'll get the kind of seltzer we want. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> and Marion's you know, point. And to that point, I mean, there's also the the MCU, and this is a point that Danielle, I appreciate, is kind of continually bringing up and we're having these discussions about the MCU, that this is, like, ultimately a capitalist firm in the context of America, right? So, of course, like, it would be more striking if they chose across the board to, like, represent a more disinterested or less interventionist or less active extra-human power or force yeah. in the rest of society when, like, they, you know, the MCU is not not an avatar for American capitalism.
0: Yeah. I think that I, I I like both of these points. Obviously I love the like MCU and capitalism point. But just thinking a little bit in terms of the perhaps this show is offering a critique of like American religious fervor and expectation and expectation about like the and maybe these points are actually the points that you're both making are not disconnected from each other. The like the way in which the, like, praying to get the, the like, right seltzer flavor, right, <laughs> is, but, like, but really, like, it is demanding a deliverable, like, mm. immediately, and I think, like, one thing that, like, I think a critique of capitalism or religion, right, like, in different ways up around the, like, the expectation that demands will be immediately met and the way in which the culture creates and like, and, and perpetuates that expectation. And there's, there's something profound about refusing to engage that expectation that like, again, this is a generous way to read the show, but I think like the show opens in bringing in the Aeneid in bringing in like a, uh, a totally different set of um religious iconography that is not part of like the American um I just want to say sensorium but that doesn't yeah. seem like the right I'm out. here for I'm it. Here for yeah. Okay. Um that it's not part of the American sensorium.
1: Angers first book.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. Maybe that's where my brain is because I
1: was reading Word of <laughs> the Feeling this
0: week. <laughs> And talking to Libby, so there's that.
1: So to give perhaps the less generous version of this, um, unsurprisingly, is all of this. I think is a fair interpretation, and also like structurally, the antagonist of the show, the antagonists of the show are Stephen Mark and Layla to some extent, and thus Kanchu, the most active, most interventionist, is like in the storytelling or narrative structure of the show, the hero, and he is or the protagonist, and he is the one who twice in this like literally changes humans orientation to the entire universe, right. To the stars, to the moon and so Mm -hmm. on. Um, and gets punished for it, right. To be sure by the other gods, but that protagonist role is played by the most, I was taken up by the most active or interventionist of the, uh, Egyptian cosmology that we see.
0: But I think it's not insignificant that he gets punished for it, right? Like, yeah. the, that's that's their whole issue with him. And so, Does like... Does the show f- on
1: us to find that punishment just?
0: Those are the real questions, John.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you could read this in a set of ways of, like, perhaps um, critiquing any sort of intervention into the Arab Spring. This show is set in Cairo. Um, yeah. You could also read this as, um, you know, are we watching... Perhaps um, uh, other interventionist governments? um, And is it a warning sign to us in the US of like, (laughs) maybe we don't have it so good anymore and maybe we Mm -hmm. need to um, not be stupid, um, to put it very eloquently, obviously?
1: We love. I mean, this is a question that I had for myself while watching the multiple scenes in which Steven slash Mark is running through the marketplace in Cairo. And it's just like wrecking shit. And I don't, I don't want to be as generous as to say this is intentionally, on a small scale, representing, like, the broader kind of interventions uh, by the U.S. Mm-hmm. or U.K. or France um, into East or into North Africa or into wherever. But it's not not that, right? Like, he's just in there running around, knocking everything over, disrupting the lives of, like, the actual people, right, active in the marketplace, um, you know, a joke at the expense of the juice guy, like, all these things.
0: But, but also, so yeah, but then Layla, Layla rolls in and is like, "You're not Egyptian, like and and like you're mm-hmm. and that's a problem, right? So like, yes, the show offers us a picture of that of that destruction, which we can read any of these, I think all of these readings are open for us and and then also offers a voice against the sort of like at least some kind of intervention, right? like mm-hmm. Layla is frustrated by by like marks like Amer- the Americanness of Mark's pre- or the outsiderness of yeah. Mark's mm-hmm. presence. So like, mm-hmm. I think that if we, even if we want to have a more, a less generous reading of I, do. of, I know you do. You always do. It's okay. <laughs> we love you for it. <laughs> Most of the time. But like, I think we can't ignore the fact that the show is also offering us like a push against that. Right. Like that both of that, that there's a little bit of both end there.
1: Within like the broader colonialist structure of the show, but we'll get into that later. And we've,
0: which Layla is also frustrated by. Right. Yes. So like, yeah. so, so I guess I've just like, I think the point that I, and maybe this closes out this part of the discussion, but like, um, the point that I'm thinking about is like, to your question, John, like, does the show want us to think that Kanchu's binding is just, I'm less interested in whether the show wants us to think that and whether it, it offers tools from, for, for only one or multiple readings of it, right? <laughs> like, like that's what I'm interested in. Yeah, and I, th- I think that like there is a version of this sh- of there's a way to read this show that's like, well, Kanchu's like part of like he stood trial. That's what the trial said. They told him they told him he was going to get punished if he transgressed again. He transgressed again. Like that's it. And then there's. Then there's another way to read it, which is like, yeah, he transgressed again, but, but like was the judgment was the judgment legitimate? I think like that is also open by the show. Just a lot of both over here.
1: <laughs> That's the catchphrase for the show. <laughs>
0: You're like, thanks, I hate it.
1: <laughs> I, I,
2: I do love a bullfand. I think it's worthwhile to talk in the in the in the methods of both
1: and then the, one of the other bits is that I've gone, like, full auteur theory um, because of the MCU and <laughs> my yeah. reaction to it, okay. which is not yeah. great. It's um, not a great look.
0: But is it textbook John McMahon? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. It is. Oh, my God. It's true. I do feel like there is a a, a version of this show that's somewhere between, like, steampunk and sleeves indie stuff. That's, I don't know, like some crazy auteur director and John's like, this is just a masterpiece, but it's the same show, <laughs> the same exact show, the same exact dynamics. And John's like, the aesthetics of this are just like, oh, this hurts. I love it
1: so much. This hurts. This really is it wrong though? <laughs> no, that's why it hurts. It's true. But as long as it's not steampunk a la the fucking teens and Boba Fett TV show, like yeah, that yeah, was yeah. the worst depiction of like the steampunk Fair. space youths were not the worst, one of the many worst parts of that show.
2: I <laughs> I po- I've told you about my steampunk novel. No, I know, but
1: I, that was a pale, like terrible imitation of like there are much better ways to do steampunk.
2: Oh, no, I should not wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Should we turn? Should I'm we- here
1: generally for steampunk. I'm not here for I, I, space steampunk use.
2: I, should so we, we listen to, the conversation to Layla as a character? Yes. Yeah, let's more. talk a little bit about Layla. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. uh, Layla's the fucking shit. And um, I love her. Um, I think that she. She's the
0: hero that we deserve, but we're not allowed to have yet.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Agree. This is a Layla Stan podcast.
1: Why not allowed?
0: Well, because (laughs) the MCU's misogynist.
2: Yeah, the MCU's misogynist, and they're, you know... Sorry,
0: I was
1: looking for That was a leading question.
2: Yes, um, they're misogynist. You know, they're all about the girl boss feminism, (laughs) and um, Layla, I think, is the opposite of a girl boss. Like... Layla, yeah. he does a lot of behind the scenes work. Layla, you know, um, does she fall sometimes into like the weird Orientalist stereotypes of how women operate? Sure, um, but does she also actively go against that? Also, yes. Does she also? I mean. May Callumway has gone on record of saying, like, she plays this very much like women that are in her family Mm -hmm. and how they're gentle and soft spoken, but still manage to do a lot of damage when they need to and get a lot of stuff done. Um, So, and she's inhabiting a different kind of femininity than I think the MCU really likes, in that she is a dirty fighter. Um, She plays tricks on people. You know, she's not. Um, you know, people love like the raw sexuality that comes with Black Widow and how um, Scarlett Johansson plays her. You know, they love this kind of spunkiness of Yelena Bor. Sure, sure. Of Yelena, played by Florence Pugh. Um, you know, I'm also thinking about how Captain Marvel has been poorly received, despite the yeah. fact that Captain Marvel's characterization, like Carol Danvers and Tony St- and Tony Stark, are the
0: same. <laughs> They're the and- same, and no one wants to talk about that. And Carol Danvers is a, like, it's one of my favorite characters. She's not my favorite Captain Marvel, but she's one of my favorite characters. Like,
1: mm-hmm.
0: a- and I think Brie Larson's portrayal of her is just, like, badass. And also, they, right, just she's awesome. Awesome. they basically just made Top Gun in space. And people were like, girls suck. Like, it's, it's, it's <laughs> right. that Marvel is, there's, like, misogyny in Marvel. And then, and we'll get into this, I think, a bit more later, but, like, there's like rampant misogyny amongst Marvel fans, and I think uh, deep misogyny of of how these comic characters get picked up. Right there's something in the in the interpretation and in the fandom that just like there's this wall against. Right. Like, like I'm
2: sure that there's someone out there who's just absolutely pissed that they made they kind of made Layla Alfulaily. Uh, mm-hmm. I think everybody. so. That's um, okay. Instead of Moon Knight's typical romantic oh, par- partner, um, Ma- oh, Mar- Marlene Alrone. Marlene. Yeah. Yeah. Who is like the daughter of Mark Spector's like archaeologist mentor guy. So basically yeah. Mary Ravenwood, but
0: yeah. Yeah. And like the idea, so I was saying this a couple of episodes ago that like Layla as a character is, ba- is like a show creation, but is, is based on other characters in the, in like the Moon Knight universe. And we we got into this discussion because we were think we were thinking about like representation of Egyptian culture and like, whether or not they're like, whether or not and how that representation representation was happening on screen. And so like, I think, like, your points about Layla being this, like, both deeply powerful, but also feminist in a different, sort of, perhaps in a different way than we either get in Marvel or than we, like, are typically offered in in mainstream pop culture. Like
2: Marvel, yeah. The MCU is not ready for intersectional feminism. We're not, they're not there yet. They might never be there.
1: Layla is also the source of, um, again, this is perhaps too generous, but like anti-colonial critique or enacting some element of anti-colonial thinking in the show. Right. So the opening scene where she is with the document forger slash confidant, um, making the passport that she's going to use to get into Egypt and all of that, you know, they have this discussion about, well, aren't you just stealing artifacts? And she makes the point that these artifacts have already been stolen. Right. And she's in some ways just returning them home. And maybe she's a little for herself, like whatever. Um, so the fact that she's offering, like it's a little belated for that to come in the third episode, but like, fine, I can lodge my complaints and move on. So like the fact that she offers that point though, I think speaks to Regan, what you're kind of thinking through in terms of the broader, like political resonances of her character. Mm-hmm. And it like connects her to Danielle and I's joke that Sylvie is a cab. Um, <laughs> she's just like the TVA are fascist nonsense. Yeah. Um, so that's the connection that I'm making.
0: Yeah. That's I love I'm that thinking. connection. Listen, I, I think that Layla is like anti-colonial ACAB. So I feel, I feel good about that. Um, and yeah, like does the critique come late? Yeah. But I guess, like, my, maybe this is my ubiquitous refrain, but, like, at least it comes, right? Like, there's a version of this show that sticks way more closely to the comics that does not have any sort of anti-colonial critique in it, which is not a version of the show that I'm interested in watching. Um I also did love, I like, it feels like Layla's, Layla's line about, like, these are already stolen does feel like a little bit of a... A wink towards the like Indiana Jones, like of it all. <laughs> like one of many winks that we get. But I like, I, this show makes me want to like see the full backstory of Layla. Like even just this episode, like I just wanted more Layla in this episode. I want, I want more Layla all the time.
1: And more at the end where like she's just placed in this position of pure wonderment to what Mark slash Steven and then Kanshu are doing with regards to the stars. And like, to some extent that kind of has to be the function yeah. that she plays in the story at that point. But like just like a pure sense of kind of bewilderment or wonderment isn't necessarily the same as the kinds of things that she's doing that you all have mentioned elsewhere in the episode or in the show.
0: Yeah, and I think the other thing is like she's the one doing the calculating on the iPad. Like she's the she's the brains here, you know. Like like there's so much. I don't know. Layla feels like it feels like there's already more depth than we are usually offered in female presenting characters in these shows, and there's like so many more places that it could go. Like the other thing I just want to call attention to is like in the scene after Conchu does the sky thing. Where they're in the car and Layla's like, "What was Harrow talking about?" Like she's not willing to like let Mark off the off the hook. Like she's always paying attention. Like she just feels sharper than everybody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a Layla. Layla's the fucking shit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Um, Danielle, I
1: think you also want to talk a little bit about the way that this episode is representing or depicting violence, um, either kind of intimately or on the broader scale, so go in either direction.
0: Yeah, I was just thinking a little bit, like, I think, and uh, something about Moon Knight, I'm sort of interested more broadly in, like, Moon Knight and its relationship to the MCU, as is, like, coming out in this discussion a little bit. And so something that we've chatted a little bit about is, is that oftentimes we are like seeing sort of egregious depictions of violence in these shows without any sort of consequences or pushback. And like, I I think it's interesting to have the Mark Stevens split where there are, there's literally pushback within like one body, right. In these two characters that are embodied by the same person. And there are consequences to violence. And then there's also these moments where it's not clear where the violence is coming from. And so I just wanted to call attention to that because I'm, I'm intrigued by it. I was just going to say, and and maybe it's not like fully satisfying in the way that it's being depicted, but like, I do think at least moving towards recognizing consequences for violence, like that says something important to me. And it like, it's an opening for a more, more, perhaps realistic engagement with violence in these shows, whether Marvel takes that opening, I think is like a a whole other question.
2: Well, I'm wondering about and talking about like the Mark Stephen divide a little bit and how these are two fully formed people in a system, a DID system. Maybe we should call it like the specter system. I don't know. Um, Love that. They um, are not working in sync as a system for one. Um, for what I understand about the community who has DID and um, how they like to discuss um, themselves and how they interact with the world as a system and multiple people in one body. Um, I'm also thinking about how this may go on in the series and talking about the violence that's often enacted in order upon a body, in order for it to need to develop multiple personalities to handle that trauma. Yeah. Um, and if that's any part of the any critiques, if if any critiques uh, that Marvel is offering offering us.
1: And so there, the idea would be that by the show splitting or like fast forwarding through the violence, that's in some ways kind of representing mm-hmm. the sort of violence or trauma that causes the or that may contribute to the initial split in the first place. Is that kind of the direction. I think that's
2: where I'm, I'm headed. Is yeah. that I think there's um, like. We are all aware that when we dissociate and we create these other personalities, like it is a trauma response and how we deal with oftentimes extreme violence um, or abuse put against um, us, big question, big quotation marks yeah. on us or a human mm-hmm. Um I'm wondering if that's part of this sort of how Mark and Steven deal with the fact of like, they don't know what's going on. They're being forced into doing things they don't want to do or don't remember. um, And how many other alters might there be in this system?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that these are all really good questions and points and I'm just, I'm going to leave it there.
1: Does that take us to the segments?
0: Yeah. I think we're, I think we have arrived at the segments. First segment up is marble splaining. So John, what are some questions you have um, about this episode?
1: So one picks up on the point that you just made Danielle then Regan the way that you kind of built on that. And that is, is the splitting or like the fast forwarding through the actual enactment of the violence itself that we see in like the couple iterations of the fight scene over the first 10 minutes, the exact same thing that was happening back in the Swiss Alps or wherever in the first episode? Or has something changed about... Stephen Mark, who is in control, who's, like, affecting the fast-forwarding, who is acting without the, like, currently present identity that is, um, through that we are viewing at that moment, like, how are the dynamics of that happening, and are they the same dynamics that we observed in the first episode of Moon Knight?
0: It seems like there is something similar happening with the like control over the body. And we're only seeing through, we're only seeing through one of the, um, through either Steven or Mark, right. We're only seeing through one of them. Uh, It seems like the same thing is happening. But but it's like a flip,
1: right? So in the first episode, Stephen is the one that we are viewing. And like Mark is doing the violence and the fast forwarding and they're in the split. And then we get Stephen after the split. But here it's Mark is about to enact violence. There's a mirror. Stephen talks to Mark. The violence split happens and we have Mark again, right? Right. So there is a slight yeah. difference. Am I understanding the structure of what's happening in the show? Like not even getting into kind of the way it's um, depicting or representing DID, but just like the actual mechanics of what's happening with these characters.
0: Yes. In the first place, it's a parallel structure, right? It's like Stephen absent Steven. And then here it's Mark absent Mark, right? There's like All a right. blackout period. Um, but I would say one big difference is that now we know that there are at least two identities mm-hmm. here, right? Um, I think that that's all I'm going to say about that for now.
1: Okay, fair enough. We anything to add on this Marvel explaining?
2: Um, I I agree. I think it's just a I think it's a storytelling choice to show us kind of who's who's driving the car.
1: Sure. All right. Yeah. Second Marvel explaining question. So what they do to Konchu at the very end, encased in stone, et cetera, et cetera, is that the same thing that has been done to Amit that has like locked Amit away, and now Haru and his cult slash group are trying to unearth Amit, or is like the thing that was done to Amit different than the thing that is done to Konchu?
0: Oh, this is a good question. So I think like mechanics-wise, it is something similar where it's like Amit has been bound or or like banished like Amit doesn't have Amit can't speak to her avatar right in the same way like we don't at least as of yet we haven't seen like an Amit like Khonshu standing behind uh, Harrow and Harrow is like obsessed with getting to uh getting to Amit so I think like in terms of mechanics. I think the show is asking us to like understand that that is something that has happened to to Amit. I think the circumstances of her not just her her binding, but also like the fact that she's hidden, to me suggests that like there is uh perhaps something like a little bit more sinister or egregious happening there. Like the hiddenness of Amit's tomb is like such a big thing here.
1: Yeah, like, that's the that was my like intuition is that something that, that whatever was done to Ahmed is like a level greater on some form than what was done, what is done to Conju in this episode. All right. So that answers my question enough. Should we go on to to the Easter egg hunt? Danielle, do you want to explain the Easter egg hunt to Regan?
0: Yeah. So in the Easter egg hunt in our Moon Knight episodes, John is picking one or a few things that he hopes our Easter eggs and I underline and highlight hopes because we know John has a lot of hope and imagination about this show Um,
1: yeah hopes is a loosely used terminology (laughs) here
0: things that John thinks could be Easter eggs uh, in the show so uh,
1: I have two nominees for the Easter egg hunt this week number one does someone else in the MCU like dramatically lick a knife at some point (laughs) no
0: but that really felt like the most like egregious uh yes but uh, like even even more pop culture reference than that like egregious like terrible callback to Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Like, like that's like, I was like, Oh God, like why? And I'm like, the only way to explain that is that they just wanted to do like, uh, like big Raiders energy here.
1: Never seen an Indiana Jones movie. So I'm wouldn't know. (laughs) You
2: would not like them. (laughs) you You would not like them, but I feel like you would be appreciative of Harrison Ford.
0: Yeah. those yeah. movies. Fair you enough. also oh. you also might like um Last Crusade, because I feel like mm. Last Crusade is the least orientalist of the three. <laughs> I agree.
1: Great. What a compliment. And I'm supposedly I'm the only one that gives backhanded compliments here on this podcast.
0: <laughs> oh, I never claim to not give backhanded compliments. <laughs> I want to be very clear. You're just okay. amazing at it.
1: Thank you. Maybe okay. Second nominee for Easter Hunt. Are there is like one of the Avengers, like a really big juice guy, and that's why they like have this supposed to be humor, uh, humorous interaction with the juice vendor in the market in Cairo.
0: No, but I I do wish that was that did that actually felt like the most authentic thing of the Cairo like market interactions was the juice guy because like juice guy juice guys in in like. In Cairo, in the market, like that feels very, very authentic to me.
2: It's, yeah, it's, I would say it's very typical of the sort of bathos sense of humor that the MCU goes for. When I see the blue sky scene, I actually think of a whole different, unre- well, maybe related. I don't know, but I think of Avatar: The Last Airbender, which has the recurring joke of this cabbage merchant oh. with the sky. I don't know. Um. If I don't think they're Easter eggs to each other, but that's what I, that's my touchstone for it.
0: I've never seen like any of the Avatar Last Airbender stuff, but like some of the podcasts that I love are obsessed with them. Um, um, it, I would say you should both watch it. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's pretty good. Yeah, I it's like on my list of things to 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 watch. It feels like it would be like a comfort food watch. Like that's that is precisely how I feel about it. Okay. Okay. This is a, I have a dear friend who like got really into it over the pandemic. So this is i I'll take your, your wreck and his
1: together.
2: I'm honored, Danielle. We've only just met.
1: (laughs) Regan, do you have any Easter egg hunt contributions? Anything you want or hopes would be an Easter egg from this episode?
2: Um, What
1: would it be an Easter egg to?
2: I I know what some of the actual Easter eggs are, which is um, when Mark uh, Mark's like crescent moon knives are obviously references to how he fights people in the comics, um, as well as um, some of the weapons that Anton chooses to use, which are also
0: references to how he fights in the comics as midnight man. Also the Cape, right? Like the, the, like the Cape, like taking the shape of a crescent moon is like, that's like straight out of a splash page. From yep. the comics. It, mm-hmm. Like, which I was just like, those, that's, the, that's the, like, comic nerd in me that's just excited when we get those visual Easter eggs. I'm like, ooh, I could, like, I've seen this on a comic book page, you know?
2: But, I mean, here and we see kind of the beauty of Moon Knight is that it does kind of exist without needing to reference the rest of the MCU. like. Yeah. Cause it's not in New York versus if you're watching Mm -hmm. like Spider-Man, if you're watching the Avengers, anything like that, like there's tons of Easter eggs
0: going back and forth to those, those like continuities. Yeah. Yeah. And like, that was, I think that's one of the things I appreciate about this show is like the, like lack of references to the rest of the MCU is actually like, it's, I think I sometimes get stressed that they're going to mess up those connecting points in these various shows and movies and things like that. And so you don't have any of that here.
1: Let's go on to gloss.
0: Yeah, let's get into gloss.
1: Tanya, right. where do you want to start?
0: Yeah. So I, one place that I want to start is I just found the scene where Kanchu turns back the sky, um, towards the end of the episode, like just so visually stunning and something I, not only visually stunning, but something else that I appreciated about it is like, we also see that everybody else can see this, right? Like, this is not just something that, like, Khonshu's doing and it's sort of, like, over in the corner. It affects, like, people on the street, you know? And there was something... That felt important to me. Um, I, I'm
2: just in agreement. Like, I think it's a beautiful shot. And I think, again, and where I fit between the two of you in the dynamic is I think there are appreciable things about, about the MCU. Um, I think um, I really appreciate a lot of the special effects choices and a lot of the, um, camera angle choices, especially with the, the turning back the sky sequence. Like it is absolutely stunning.
1: So, I'm going to drop the obnoxious hipstery take that I actually preferred the earlier version of when Kanshu is messing with the mm. sky when he turns it into an eclipse. Both just kind of like as a visual spectacle, I preferred the special effects of the CGI of that to the CGI of like the spinning uh, or rolling back or winding sky. And then I also loved the way that the eclipse that Kanshu causes affects the lighting of the things that are mm-hmm. like happening on the ground. I'm yeah. thinking yeah. specifically of the boat ride that, uh, Layla and Steven slash Mark take to Anton's party. Um, mm-hmm. Like just that's one of the most beautifully lit scenes that I've seen yeah. so far in the MCU. So I will uh, I will go with that take. It. Like I did appreciate the conjure rewinding the constellations rewinding the stars, but I think I like found more um, like more aesthetically like beautiful or generative the earlier eclipse version of that.
0: Yeah, I mean, and I thought that the eclipse the eclipse was was also beautiful. I think I just like. There was something about the spectacle of the the scene at the end that I that I loved, and I think part of it too was just like I liked that Layla was playing such a key role in that too. Even though she's not the one doing the turning back, she is like sort of doing the calculating. She's the brains. We love Layla. She's the fucking shit. <laughs>
1: she's the best. Danielle, you would like to suggest that the court of the gods, that the Aeneid is corrupt, and I would be interested to hear why that's the case.
0: I just felt like there was some canoodling with Harrow there. That, like, they, it just seemed like they were too ready to, like, let Harrow do whatever he needed to do. And I felt like, even though Kanchu was kind of a dick, like, that Harrow, you know... It was, it was clear that the case that Conchu was making against Harrow should have been a problem for that court of gods. It was explicitly going against the thing that they said we cannot do. And they were like, nah, he seems fine. You, though, like, you're in trouble. And that just felt like those, those gods were being paid off. <laughs> So (laughs) I just feel like they're corrupt.
1: And I can't say I fully understood the like plot significance of the final scene where Harrow is there again inside, like at the court within the Great Pyramid. Um, But my guess is that it has something to do with uh, with your theory here, Danielle.
0: That's exactly like it was like when Harrow comes back, I'm like, you should not be back there. Like, like, this is not
1: cool. Thoughts on fortune felt- on Hero. Yeah. You know?
0: um, well I, I mean I'm going through
2: this as uh, as someone who's finished the series. Yeah. And I know the significance of him hanging back. Um, but I don't want to spoil it for John. Fair enough. Um yeah. I mean True friend. I, <laughs> look, I'm just like this small goblin woman who's like wormed her way into John's life. We love it. I'm honored every time you tell me I'm your friend. Um,
0: <laughs> wow.
2: This is a goblin woman stand podcast. <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, yes. Where Danielle and I are both small goblin women, and John is exactly. our emotional support white man.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's like honestly, what, what really true. In my life, really.
2: I mean, honestly, <laughs> a greater audience. John's even my emergency contact. That's that's a lot of value. Maybe the two of us. John
0: and I lived in the same state. I think you would also be my emergency contact, but c- currently it's my mom. Honored. Right.
1: Yeah, that seems fair. Yeah. Uh, Vicki Hanley probably can is better in a crisis than I. <laughs>
0: which Vicki Hanley phenomenal system. in a crisis. <laughs> I have been in many crises. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of get up, sit up, you'll be fine. Which, like, in a crisis, you need to hear. <laughs> but my thoughts on this corrupt, Aeneid, um, I think... <clears throat>
2: It's just wild to me that sometimes people don't pick up on like they're showing you what corruption looks like, dear yeah. reader, and people go, "This can only happen in stories." Nah, <laughs> no sense. here, here it is. <laughs> this is this is what happens in our real <laughs> lives.
0: So that's my One thoughts. Part of, God, of God's. I'm on board with that. Amazing. Goblin women unite. <laughs> Love it. This is, we're gonna have to make it a new hashtag. Okay, so John, I think you had some thoughts on um, the graphics and the credits.
1: Yeah, so I think the end credits, like, are really, really well done graphic design. And with the exception of the two times when Konchu is messing around with the sky, is more visually interesting than the rest of Moon Knight. That's my <laughs> take. <laughs>
0: I do think that the end credits are are really interesting. Um it, it's like a Marvel thing that end credits are like are interesting and meant to grab you because like, right, like Marvel sort of introduces the the sort of like mid-credit and end credit scenes. So
1: I think part of it is they want you the podcast audience cannot see my eyes roll.
2: Well, I mean I and I'll also it's a good it's they good do this is another positive in Marvel's Point in my mind as someone who's in like writing studies and how we interact with a team of people creating and producing a work is that exactly. you know if we look back in the day, all the credits used to be at the front end yeah. of the movie and they'd front load it. Like we see this with like any Disney movie before 1972, any um, you know old the Ten movies, Commandments, which is my Ten favorite movie, of, like, um, I Wizard of Oz, it. like they always front load. Yeah you know, the people who have been part of creating this thing. And while our modern audiences cannot and will not tolerate that, I think it's really interesting and important that Marvel does place emphasis on the ending scenes and giving, showing them like, okay, here's all the parts and pieces that went into making this. Something that I actually value about Marvel.
1: Yeah, that I I am here for, right? Because like there's not a skip intro option that or too. button right because then credit the credits yes. come at the end
0: yes yeah so the point about the like mid-credit or end credit scene is like yeah they do plot things but also like what they do is they force people to sit and watch the credits In like a moment in history where people could not care less who's actually doing the creating like as evidence like and this is even true of the marvel corporation itself right like we just saw that all of the vfx artists have all these claims against marvel on the way that they're treated right so like they on the one hand we get this like sort of beautiful end credit On the other hand, like there is a a severe undervaluing, even from the company that is like putting it out there um, for those who are doing the actual labor. But I I think the other thing that like Marvel end credits do sometimes is there are this is this is more the case for Loki than it is for Moon Knight. But in Loki, number of end credit like slides some of them in the earlier episodes are empty. They have graphics, but they don't have, like, a person or an actor or, like, any credit on them. And so those were places where, like, fans were like, okay, we're going to get another character. We're going to get another something or other. So it was, like, breadcrumbs for people who were paying attention in addition to, like, breadcrumbs for people who are actually interested in who did the
1: creating here. I have much less serious point to add into class.
0: <laughs> we love
1: that there's no reason I don't think that Mark slash Steven needs to fully take off his shirt. and like, <laughs> There just so happens to be another shirt in the background to change into, but I nonetheless support this very strongly.
2: <laughs> I have no opposition to seeing Oscar <laughs> Isaac yeah, take exactly. clothes like off. Like it's
1: gratuitous, but that's fine. I'm
2: like, <laughs> He's not my number <laughs> one Marvel dude, but you know, I'm, I'm not mad at it. Oh, who's your number one Marvel dude? I'm
0: classic. I really love like Steve Rogers. <laughs> Listen, you know, we're all we're all Haley Atwell like reacting to Steve coming out of the the like pod in real time. Right.
2: And then it just it helps that like Chris Evans has like grown within that character, like and his recent stylist choices are just
1: Ilaria One of the Urbanati recent stylist like, choices. Oh no,
2: there's a, there's a follow up. I'll show you, John. Well,
1: I don't know. So I there was a like article yesterday making on um, New Gawker making fun of Chris Evans's recent style, and mm-hmm. I didn't agree with the entirety. I loved the like tight sweater shirt, right. as, as both of you know, actually. Yeah. Like, yes. <laughs> separately, we conversed about these. Uh, oh, okay. But some of his other recent <laughs> style choices, I.e. the choice of uh, his stylist. Were bro- questioned, and I think appropriately so. Fair enough. I, I would have guessed that Steve Rogers was Captain America, but I did have to wait for one of you to, like, make a <laughs> I mean, to, to double-check that I actually knew that.
0: I will also say that my sisters sent me the BuzzFeed article that was like, Chris Evans says that he's, like, ready to look for love, and my response was, I volunteer as tribute.
2: <laughs> Here's the thing is, I think that he actually probably already is secretly married with, like, five kids.
1: I was hiding
0: it really. I love
1: this conspiracy theory. I I, know this was coming. It's not on the notes. I love it. I
0: actually know for sure that that's not true. But I also love this conspiracy
1: theory. (laughs) Okay.
2: Well, all right. I'm gonna not worry about the conspiracy theory. But if there's anyone who would have kept like a secret wife, like way better than John Lennon ever kept his wife secret, Mm. it would be
0: Chris Evans. Honestly, like that's the yes. Agree, fully agree. Yeah, I hmm I think that Oscar Isaac might be my number one number I one. I respect that a lot. I just love him. I was telling John that he should watch um a marriage scenes from a marriage, which mm. is Oscar Isaac and Jessica Chastain in the in the new version. And there's a lot of like naked Oscar Isaac in that in that show.
1: Supportive of this.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The MCU could learn something from it.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: MCU's not ready for female gays though. They're not ready for female
0: gays. 100%. Oh my
2: God. It's very sad. <laughs> I know. They could make so much more money if they would just learn a few lessons from every historical drama ever, but no,
0: <laughs> they can't. Yeah, just give us some like timid, almost hand holding, like in a Jane oh, Austen. All time. I want out of this life is just to look at like Thor's baby hands,
2: <laughs> like
1: Captain America's baby hands.
2: Any baby hands. That's all I want out of this life. Did I'll you, even take hands. Did Paul you see and that
1: Zarni's hands in the bear were Jezebel's crush of the week last week? I can't. I can't.
2: I can't talk about the bear right now. Okay. I
1: really
0: can't. Okay. Okay, I want to <laughs> we'll be here I want for two hours. <laughs> I couldn't get past the first episode. Wow. I was too stressed out. I can't oh, watch shows that it. stress me out. It's
1: worth it. Says <laughs> Danielle, who committed to seven years of podcasting about a Cold War spy show.
0: The American stresses me out an appropriate amount because I'm mostly just afraid that someone's going to find them out. And that they're like doing a bad job. But like, there was something about the like level of yelling and yes, chefing. And I love chef shit. Like, I love it. In the first episode of The Bear, and I was, and the, maybe the restaurant's going under and like the health inspector, I was like, I give too much. <laughs> Here's
2: the thing about The Bear is that I fully 100% agree with The, the Atlantic's take is that The Bear is a show about toxic masculinity and how it's just causing big meltdowns. I, I'm 100% on board with that. This
1: is a common discussion on this podcast. Is yeah. so How are <laughs> pop culture depicting toxic masculinity?
2: Yeah, there's, so, they're yeah. showing of like, here's how it's going to... like The bear is definitely showing like, here's how it's being set on fire and ruining things for
0: everybody. Well, and there's like a version of like how is this show doing toxic masculinity that is like the Stephen Mark split is, is enacting and, and challenging and reenacting over and over and over again. Right. Mm -hmm. Like that, that, that is a reading of this show. So I'm here for that. John, do you want to give us the the one good joke that yes. you found in this episode?
1: So, Regan, the bit here is that the humor is just, like, bad in the MCU generally. But I try very, very, very hard to find one good joke in every episode. Usually I can find something. Oftentimes, Daniel informs me structurally it's not actually a joke. Uh, so here we go. This week, the one good joke is the gods and their avatars asking Harrow or saying, telling Harrow, this is a safe space to say if they've been exploited. By
0: <laughs> God. And my take on this is like, I think that's like one of those, like it's a joke in the writer's room. Like, let's make this, let's like have them have a safe space line. And then it's like not played for laughs in the show, but it is a joke. <laughs>
2: I, yeah, I kind of agree with Danielle. I think it was not intended for us to all laugh at necessarily, unless you're someone who's very into that kind of like, I don't know,
1: discourse, discourse. Exactly. We're all in the discourse. Yeah. yeah. All into the discourse. For better versus, and mostly for worse.
2: Yeah. Versus, I don't know. I mean, I think Moon Knight is not meant to be a comedy versus like, this is no. this is nothing like
1: I know, but it has lots of like, sub- not lots. It has some lines that are supposed to be laugh lines, and right. they're groan worthy like ninety eight percent of the
2: time. Agreed. Versus like, this is not when I think of like funny Marvel movies. I go for like Ga- Guardians of, of the Galaxy, which you yeah. would hate. Yes, but
1: well,
0: I I roll on the floor laughing half the time. One million percent. One million percent. I, okay, so I, do I know actually that there's
1: Groot and a raccoon. Good job. How do so. you? <laughs>
0: Honestly, like, that's a... I'm impressed.
1: Can I tell you? And Chris Evans is involved? Nope. No. No, Chris, Chris. The worst, Chris. Chris, the worst the Chris. Chris. The worst Chris. The worst
0: Chris. Christian worst Chris.
1: Chris. Okay.
0: Christian Chris. <laughs> um, wait, I have I have what I thought was the best joke, or, like, not joke, but but, like, a wink-wink joke. In my notes, it's, this is a flex, so you guys can decide if it's actually a flex. But when... Conchu, this is, is on top of the clock. And he's like, TikTok, tock, Mark Spector. <laughs> I just like loved that he was on top of a clock. That felt very funny to me. Danielle, I'm here for a good visual pun. I'm here for it thank you. thank you. <laughs> like Regan, you can come back whenever.
1: You want yes. <laughs> I, I think I've been supplanted for the last three episodes of Moon Knight.
0: I mean, is I'm that like,
1: better or worse in my life? I, I don't really, know. I'm
2: really <laughs> going to watch the podcast feeds Twitter and I just want to be the most beloved
0: guest and, and be a popular request to be invited back.
1: <laughs> that assumes we have listeners or followers. So you don't get your hopes up.
0: Yeah. Those is- are rough assumptions.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right, Regan, and if you want to prove your beloved guest status, why don't you tell us who the minor character of the week is?
2: Oh, um, the minor character of the week that I think we need to talk about is Anton Mogert, um, played by um, Gaspard Uliel, Rest in peace, R.I.P. Right. Who Gaspard Uliel has, um, I think, made his mark on American audiences by playing a young Hannibal Lecter in Hannibal Rising. Um, he was um, certainly an important part of me. Recognizing, like, hmm, yes, attractive man um, <laughs> with a uh, with like a cool scar on his face, um, and so Anton Voger is canonically known as Midnight Man, who's one of um, uh, Moon Knight's uh, rogues in his rogue gallery. Um, and I think the interesting thing about Midnight Man is that had Gaspard Deliel not like tragically passed away in a skiing accident at thirty-seven, too young. I
0: know. Um,
2: he would have been a really interesting maybe anti-hero, anti-villain kind of guy in that he's doing almost the exact same thing that Layla is, just in like a, a gross white man way um, of gathering, of like stealing back artifacts, but he keeps them in a, in a private collection for the most part. Um, yeah. So Midnight Man is kind of an interesting villain in that he goes on to have a son who also becomes kind of a reluctant ally of Moon Knight later on. Um... And he's known to be in the comics, like he's a jewel thief who um, plots to have his robberies happen yeah. like exactly on the dot at midnight. It's kind of his shtick. Um, but I don't know. Just I think he just brings a lot to this of like some dynamics with how Layla and Mark function, but also Layla and Steve, um, and that we're watching Steve openly become very, very jealous of any men who interact with Layla. Um, and also they just they're just shooting Gaspar Fred just so
0: beautifully, like, yeah, really. He, he has the closest to the female gaze that we're getting here. He has like such a there's something about the like robe like on a horse, right like. Right. And uh, it's sort they're of jousting, like, like yeah. What is this, like medieval times? <laughs> and Layla's
2: like,
1: breaks- there. Sorry.
2: Uh, no. I was going for medieval times, okay. the okay. restaurant, which does play into eroticism all the it's a, time. It's a
1: good point. It's a good point. Come back on to give the queer reading of medieval times. I mean, okay, this is
2: my thing about medieval times: is that there's like medieval times TikTok where they have there. There's women who have fa- their favorites amongst the medieval times performers. <laughs>
0: I've never been to a Medieval Times, but I feel like I would love it. Danielle, we should go sometime. Done. In.
1: Yeah, let's, let's figure find, out what's one like halfway between us yeah. and we'll go to Medieval <laughs> we'll go. Times. and,
0: and Is there a, a in Medieval Times in Troy? <laughs> <laughs> John, Regan and I will eat your, uh, like, turkey leg. Yeah. This is what I,
2: this is really what I think the plan should be, is that Danielle and I live our best lives, and then John
0: drives. (laughs) That's real, like, male emotional support. (laughs) Like, exactly. (sighs) I feel like John's role in my life is to bring people into my life. I feel like every friend of John's that I have met, I'm like, well, you're my friend now, too. Like, (laughs) too bad. (laughs) Um, I I feel similarly, but I also feel like
2: if I'm like really angry, like this has happened on multiple occasions. I'm like, John, I need to come to your office and I just need to cuss and rant. And then the entire poly sci department here listens to me being very upset about like things that objectively I don't know if everyone else would be upset about.
1: There have been some legitimate <laughs> complaints. We can leave it there. Save the rest of uh, the Patreon that doesn't exist.
0: <laughs> but yeah. I think that Anton Mogart and like you know untapped potential or unrealized potential for Midnight Man is a ace's choice for minor character of the week in fact he was also my minor character of the week so i really support that thank you
1: all right (laughs) let's go to politics in the mcu this week regan we would like to invite you to talk about uh, how colonialism is functioning in this episode of moon Knight. Danielle and i have both had the chance to uh talk about this many times already but so how do you see it operating in this particular episode
2: Okay, so I'm seeing it as, like, this sort of artifact thing. Like, this is this is an episode that is really critiquing, like, the British Museum um, and a lot of how the West is, like, well, we're going to take these artifacts and then we're just going to let the Western people learn from them. And that's, like, not good. Um, yeah. <laughs> so talking about in artifacts and also in how, like, again, how Layla is behaving as an agent, like, she is... Definitely being someone who is taking uh, control over how, how Westerners get access to information mm-hmm. about her culture, which I think is really cool. Um, I also think this is showing us a lot about the white Western gaze upon maybe Northern Africa and the greater Middle East specifically. Um as a broad term as well. I mean, we could just center it on, on, in on Egypt as well, but um, this is definitely showing us like white Western gaze. Um, This is the getting into being kind of the Indiana Jones of it all. The creators have obviously, you know, mentioned that Indiana Jones has been an inspiration in some ways. We're getting into that as long as like, you know, Steve is like Steve, for example, is a really big nerd about this and he um, is really interested in this. I am also thinking of this in a way of like, Um, connections I'm seeing from my own background um, within English studies um, of these weird connections to Edgar Rice Burroughs, who's like the er ur-colonialist writer aside from Joseph Conrad. Um, And his Mars Chronicles and um, the print, like, thinking specifically of John Carter of Mars and John Carter's character of Dejah Thoris, who I'm seeing as a lot of parallels with Layla um, and how she's interacting with, like, the Western man who's kind of a big fish out of water and trying and overpowered in weird ways and trying to figure out how to interact in society.
1: Yeah. Regan, I appreciate that. And it actually speaks to something. I think Danielle and I mentioned this maybe on the first episode about Moon Knight, that there's the particular kind of colonialism and knowledge question. There's the Western gaze question and, and Danielle, earlier you raised the kind of parallels to the Iliad. And so mm-hmm. here, like, I'm also thinking of uh, Martin Bernal's three-volume series, Black Athena, right? Trying yeah. to kind of, you know, it's a histori- historiographi- historiographically, uh, you know, controversial work. But he makes the argument, and it's way more complicated than I could do, just as soon I haven't read in all three volumes by any means. Uh, he's arguing that there is much greater influences on what we consider to be um, you know, ancient uh, classical Athens or ancient Greece yeah. from North Africa, from Africa more yeah. broadly, from Egypt very specifically at several points, yeah. the, par- the few parts of it that I have read. And I don't know if he specifically ever talks about Homer, right? But there might not just be the how can we use the Iliad to think about what's happening with um, with relation to the gods in Moon Knight, but also how might the how might Egyptian cosmologies have shaped, if not Homer himself, or the storytellers kind of uh, recreating Homer or kind of the ways that we yeah. receive Homer. But like some other point down the line, if we accept Bernal's overall argument, presumably the way that the myth or the traditions that Homer uh inaugurates or codifies get replicated or passed down there's some then kind of cross-cutting influences along the way from north africa or from egypt
0: yeah and i think that there is like and part of what bernal is is drawing on and i think part of what others have then gone on to develop sort of in the wake of some of these ideas is like there is like anthropological evidence and just like generally evidence about like you know, the Greeks and the Phoenicians and the Egyptians, like that these are all, pl- and like various, like these are all places that were trading with each other that are in contact with each other. So like there is not necessarily like the, the Homeric um, cosmology is not disconnected from an Egyptian cosmology, is not disconnected from uh, a cosmology that then gets um, sort of like codified in a in a slightly different way like in the in the Hebrew Bible right that there is like cross there's a lot of evidence that all of these things were sort of in contact with each other and I think that that is to me that is generative and I think like part of the critique of, of Bernal right is like that that like this is an attempt to like read a a set period in history in a very different way. Right. And that, and that, and that is itself like a manifestation of like, of the Western gaze of like the systems of knowledge that that gaze produces and reinforces. And so all of these things then, then sort of come to come together and are like structuring power, like through a very particular lens. Okay. And so John, you, you have a note here for us, Aeneid as U.S. Senate. So I am interested to hear how you are thinking about those things together.
1: Yeah. So we get this line from one of the uh, human avatars of the gods and the Aeneid and the Great Pyramid and like the chamber, something about, like, we will not tolerate violence in this chamber. And I'm just getting like real strong Joe Manchin vibes. Like <laughs> how could we possibly like abolish the filibuster. We have this tradition. It's set in stone. It's definitely totally cool and not at all fucked up or racist or uh, oppressive in any way whatsoever. There's no problem with the legacy of these made up rules and norms that we've established. They're set in stone. We can't violate them. So just in this particular moment, the year of our Lords 2022, uh, I thought that this was uh, something I could not escape.
0: Fully endorse. I fully endorse this reading. I actually think it maps like quite nicely onto my like is the Aeneid corrupt <laughs> like branch. True. Mm-hmm. I, like it. It really just complements it. So yeah, I'm in.
1: All right. Great. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that was easy. <laughs> That's literally the least amount of conflict we've had on this entire episode. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> Look, if there's one thing we can agree upon, even amid our disagreements about the MCU, it can be fuck you, Joe Manchin. Um, one million
0: percent.
1: Yeah. The Leah Stokes article about him in the Times was really vicious and spot on. Love that. All right. So let's go down to the cave. Uh, Regan, you've mentioned already a little bit about Edgar Rice Burroughs, so I'm wondering if you wanted to expand on that or kind of draw in other folks into the cave uh, with us to, uh, to think about this episode.
2: Right. So I'm thinking a lot about, like, this is a series which inherently will never leave Western gaze. Like, it just can't. Um, yeah. So, um and thinking about Edgar Rice Burroughs, who's primarily known for Tarzan, which is, like, the book's incredibly problematic. Um, But also, as I pointed out to John before over my dining room table while eating <laughs> full cookie, um, is that... Edgar Rice Burroughs and Tarzan, for example, are really excellent parallels to the MCU, where the MCU is grabbing and cash cow on everything. And Tarzan was a similar phenomenon in the 30s. So I do want to just put that out there, Um, where there's, you know, Tarzan films, Tarzan radio serials, Tarzan comics, uh, you know, all sorts, everything Tarzan. We like a
1: good, like, political economy, like these conglomerates are talking
2: about. Right, right, Yeah. yeah, right. This has happened before. And it will happen <laughs> it's happening again because DC is really trying. Um, and DC actually has already done it better on television, frankly. Um <laughs> But anyway, so kind of this Ur-Colonialism thing where we not necessarily with Tarzan, but I think a better parallel is with the John Carter of Mars Chronicles, um, which is they made a terrible movie um, trying to capitalize on oh, Avatar yeah. many years ago um, where there's some parallels going on here with um, John Carter um, is like a from Tennessee or something. He's a civil war veteran in the books and he's somehow transported to Mars. Um, And it's an inhabited Mars that has, you know, a fully functioning society. And so I'm seeing a lot of like John Carter and then Mark and Steve system as being like, this is just a Western man who, who should not be here and maybe needs to get out and the fish out of water trope that keeps coming around. (laughs) Conversely, John Carter is also married to a badass um, Martian woman named Dejah Thoris, and um, she, much like Layla, is introducing to him how to operate. She has her own machinations. Um, I would say she's maybe not as not as much of a self starter as Layla, but she has her own way about things and her own. She has magic powers versus Layla, you know. Mostly just a badass, um, but Deja has lots going on. She has a lot more political capital, also because she's a princess. Um, so, kind of reflecting on how that comes into each other, but also plays into the monomyth, and um, which we famously know from "Hero with a Thousand Faces" by Joseph Campbell, mm-hmm. um, which is why we have Star Wars
1: <laughs> essentially.
2: <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> and the different and the different parts of this that are also happening in Moon Knight that um Joseph Campbell's put together for us of like we get Stephen is kind of the young fool at the beginning mm-hmm. we're hopping yeah. through we have the kind of a wise older mentor in conchu yeah. um you know we are picking up a sidekick which is Layla who has way more agency than your average sidekick so yeah critique you know, um, and entering into the monomyth and how that plays out in in many stories because that's what the monomyth is about is about finding, giving a reader familiar footsteps of like, okay, this is how this person's going to operate and understand and how we shape things. And mm-hmm. the monomyth can be squared into lots of different um, ways of being, but it doesn't always fit best with non-Western ideologies, which I think is kind of interesting of like yeah. how we're kind of critiquing the monomyth in some ways. Like our only sensible sidekick is actually is not the sidekick and actually her own hero in some ways.
0: I, first of all, I love that and I love that the way that that sort of brings us to Layla and some of the, the questions that we've had around Layla or like the things that we've appreciated about Layla and how that's like breaking out a bit of, of this broader uh, arc that maybe we're, that we can read into the show. I think that that's super helpful.
2: Monomyth gives, it gives us footholds for everything.
1: Yeah. And I'm thinking particularly Regan about the ways that Moon Knight is or is not, I mean, to use, you know, kind of concept and practice that is relevant to you and your work. And that is kind of the way it's trying to remix the, uh, the hero's journey myth. Mm -hmm. And the sidekick is kind of one of the key aspects. And, It's been too long since I read somebody analyzing Star Wars and also, like, Song of Ice and Fire is very amenable to, like, Hero's Journey uh, readings and podcasts and interpretations as well. But, like, are there other places where you're seeing the show remixing or challenging or trying to do something different than, like, the Monomyth Hero's Hmm. Journey thing?
2: I mean, I think, for one, I think it's kind of interesting that we have, like, a Deuter antagonist with the Steve Mark system. Mm -hmm. Um, And I continually call it system because I think that's what uh, the DID community prefers to refer to themselves as. um, That's helpful. Just for our, whatever audience there may be out there. Um, But a great question. um, Right. So in some, in some ways we would see that, um, you know, Mark is the protagonist and maybe Steve is the goofy um, uh, sidekick, but there are parts where Mm -hmm. They're both fighting for agency over the body that they share, um, which I yeah. also think is really interesting as to how we kind of look into supporting characters. Um, I also think again, like the wise, the trope of like the wise old um, mentor. So we're thinking like the Ben Kenobis, the Gandalfs, you know, those yeah. kind of characters. Like Kanshu is not that. Like Kanshu nope. is like again, he fights a lot. He fights dirty, and he um, is not really someone that that mark nor steve really like um and find him very frustrating versus like sure gandalf has like his own ulterior motives in some ways but he's ultimately fighting for good yeah, has his I, own agenda.
0: i was just gonna say conchu has his own agenda so it's not like i mean i guess like obi-wan has his own agenda which is like bringing balance to the force or like something but that like agenda that. becomes luke's agenda right that's like a, that's a that's a broader agenda like i think like part of what's interesting about thinking Moon Knight through the lens of the hero's journey and like, and um, Reagan to like think along with your work about remixing, like we have this like wise older mentor figure who is like, not just like in it for the good of all. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, so that's like a remix. I would also say that like, it is debatable whether or not Mark and or Steven is a hero, right? Like that too. Like, I think that, that uh, John, I'm thinking back to your question of like, are we meant to see the binding of Kanchu as just, I think like a version, a different version of that question is like, are we meant to see Mark and or Steven as like the figure of a hero? Yeah. And I I don't, I don't know the answer to that.
1: Right. And I think one of those is the point you made Regan about like the, if, this is a hero, it's a hero that is fundamentally a uh, multiplicity rather mm-hmm. than a single subject. Exactly, right? And yeah. that on its own challenges the kind of hero's journey, right. like, which really is the kind of um, singularity of the particular, right. the particular heroes. So there's that aspect to it. And then there's like the how are we evaluating or interpreting what the characters are doing versus like the structure of like how this is imploded in this broader narrative structure, whether it's a hero's journey structure or other Mm -hmm. kind of common storytelling or narrative structures that place them in their place, the system and the function of a protagonist, even if there are ways in which they are not so uh, protagonistic.
2: Right. Well, and then then the next step, in the hero's journey is also the ra- the romance question. Mark is already married to Layla. Like yeah. that also is kind of an interesting twist on this as well. Is that there's kind of always like the princess to save sort of thing. Like we're getting to the point where Han and Han and Luke are getting uh, Princess Leia out of her dungeon or whatever. On, yeah, on, the, desk, on uh, the Death Star or whatever. Um, we're getting to that point, but we've already moved past that. They're married. Like, but well, Steven... Right, is showing his interest, and he's like, mm, I would really like to kiss this woman. Um, but as being himself,
1: you know, he's, he's being Steve. Um, and we get the scene of them on the boat to right. the party as the reflection on the falling apart marriage yes. between yes. Mark and Leela, rather than the budding romance that Stephen would like to uh, implot. Right. Um,
2: yes. So an interesting remix, perhaps more of a critique of the monomyth as well, in that in the party scene too, of like, well, we're seeing, you know, the steps that Stephen would like to take versus things that Mark's already made a mess of.
0: Yeah, I I I'm like really taken by thinking about the like the way in which having a multiplicitous like, um, like hero in quotation marks is like challenging all of these pieces because I think like, right, there's a way to read the journey through Steven only, right? Mm -hmm. Like if we read it through Steven only, then the journey is ongoing, right? He hasn't, he is attracted to the princess character who also is the sidekick. So that's like its own complication, but like nothing's happening there. But if we take the, the other part of the system, like Mark has already completed that piece of the journey, and so what happens? Everything because we're we're in we're like taking each step of the journey with both of these personalities. Like that, the where we are on the art always multiple places. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's anything, but
1: that's what yeah. I'm no, I- and Stephen is at times like the desire to turn back or return yes. right? yeah. premature mm-hmm. prematurely quote unquote from the standpoint of the journey mm-hmm. um, or the final resolution to the journey but at other times he is to your point danielle kind of the subjectivity that is pushing things forward
0: so right. here here's a question that we like often ask ourselves as we get to the end of the cave which is like does the person or the thinker that we took into the cave with us, so in this case, I think, like, Edgar Rice Burroughs and
1: or Joseph Campbell. And or the monomyth itself.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Do we, like, do we leave them to sort of fester in the cave for a bit? Have they achieved enlightenment with us? And do we let them come out of the cave? I My take is, like, these dudes stay in the cave. <laughs> I think Edgar Rice Burroughs needs to stay.
2: Good. The monomyth, I think, here's the thing about the monomyth is that it's easy. It is such a valuable artifact in my mind in that it teaches us how to plot things. And that's important, mm-hmm. like from my point of view in writing studies and how to organize our, our, ourselves and also how to recognize tropes. And when we recognize yeah. things that are going wrong or maybe you should be critiqued, I think that's the utility of the monomyth is okay. that it's, it's framework. That allows yep. us to go, okay, this is working, this is not. And the Monomyth, like if there were a smart one person out there, someone needs to revise the Monomyth for the modern era because Joseph Campbell was doing that back in, like what, the late 60s? Yeah, 60s I, I think say, the late yeah. 60s. Um, and then George Lucas got his hands on it and then brought it all to our forefront with Star Wars. Yeah. Um, there, It is... When I think of the monomyth and how many modern things and contemporary things are following the monomyth, yeah, it's not a lot. I would say the MCU is not thinking about the monomyth very much, um, no. especially these days. We've moved past it. Um, but I do think that it's, it's such a useful tool for pointing out how, where we can go and how we can move forward and how we can improve story t- storytelling. I think it could come out. But it needs some revision.
1: It's like one of the puppeteers, maybe. Like it's, I was just thinking, it's personified, it's, and is one of the puppeteers in the cave.
0: Yeah, or like it can stoke the fire,
1: mm-hmm. but yeah, okay.
0: It, okay, yeah. So it's not on, it's not chained to the wall, but like mm-hmm. still in the cave, but like more in the like more agentic parts of the cave. Perfect. Okay.
1: Exactly where yeah. it belongs.
0: That that amazing. Works.
1: All right. So obviously when we have guests on, we like to do something that is specific to them and their interests. So in Regan corner this week, Regan, you've mentioned already that you, uh, part of your work is in writing center studies and writing studies. And also another part of your work is in fan studies. So we wanted to kind of open the floor to you to like bring your fan studies, uh, knowledge and skills okay. to our gigantic audience.
2: Right. So the things I'm seeing is my, my primary interest in, um, fan studies in particular, again, with sort of also we brought up my interest in remix culture and how we remix things, is I'm very invested in fan fiction writing. Um, that was an important part of how I became an academic, a scholar. I don't know. Those are words yeah, those that, are words apply, that apply, apply, apply to me. 100%.
1: Um,
2: Absolutely. Right. And so those are important touchstones in how I develop my way of thinking, which is often a little out of the box, a little weird, highly Aquarian. Um, <laughs> so, we love we love all those things here. Thank you. Thank you. I've never felt so loved um, than being on this podcast. <laughs> no one tell my girlfriend. <laughs> but anyways, so I'm thinking a lot about one big critique um, is that John um, and I have had a separate conversation about is like this article that came out from what was it? Um, it was in Vice. It was in Vice, yeah. right, about about the MCU as an aesthetic project. And my thing, again, mm. was this sort of Edgar Rice Burroughs saying, like, this has happened before with Tarzan. We've seen this happen again. Why are we shocked about this? We shouldn't be shocked. Um, and one of these points in this article was like, well, one of the big critiques of this is that there's no entry point into the MCU anymore mm. that lets you in and that in itself is also kind of a patriarchal construct and a big issue within um fan studies particularly is like dealing with um patriarchal fans versus feminist fans um i personally yeah. see feminine like feminist fan work as being things like fan art um things like fan fiction where you're going into doing things on your own agency the primary like Fan authors, by and large, are women and queer folks. It's rare that you get, like, a a cishet man who's writing fan fiction actively. They tend to be the collectors. They tend Mm -hmm. to be the people who have, like, the things and, like, the prowess and knowledge. There's So this Vice article had a lot to say about this entry point thing. I think one thing to talk about a bit is this sort of feminist entry point that Moon Knight's not doing because it's kind of you know, isolated in a little bubble from itself. We have no mentions really of like the blip or um, other large things um, that are happening um, within the larger universe that this Mm -hmm. kind of phase four story is talking about. Um, Moon Knight in some ways feels like a pet project um, in my, in my, my eyes, but I think it's a very important project to go and happen. Um, versus the feminist entry point would be more of what Ms. Marvel is doing right now, which is yeah. like, we're just starting again with someone else. Like, we are capitalizing on some knowledge that you maybe know who Captain Marvel is and who Carol Danvers is and how she operates. And we're mm-hmm. just going with it. And we're introducing more people and putting it in a very grounded place in Jersey City. This also brings into another point that I had um, about a scholar named Out, who's an idealistic rhetorician. And okay. how the MCU um, is using idealistic rhetoric, which w- the way I'm taking it with Winterout is that he is discussing in many ways when you use writing um, of what of writing what you think needs to be written and, okay. and discussing what you think needs to happen and doing okay. the writing for your yourself as as the writer as the author versus what you think your audience wants. So here Can you we give in my
0: example.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. So here's here's my example is, is Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones up until probably season six is just a straight up adaptation with like a few twists here and there to to make it you know more concise or bring it up to speed with an audience. Um, and then we got to the point of where they ran out of of George R. R. Martin's material, right? So yeah. what what the showrunners chose to do was what Winterout argues against, um, which is that they went for purely like kind of fan service. We're going to give the fans what they think they want versus what the fans actually wanted. And I think that's the interesting thing about the MCU is that it kind of is aligned with winter out it's it's doing its own thing that it thinks needs to be done regardless of if the fans want it or not there's been a lot of pushback against miss marvel against um a lot of the television shows specifically within the mcu um you know uh, in similar ways that we've seen with star wars like they're against you know the additional diversity can we just keep telling the same tony stark captain america stories over and over again right like I feel like the Any only series, changes. right? The only series that hasn't gotten significant pushback was Hawkeye, which is about one of the original Avengers that we've seen in the MCU.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I think that that's such an interesting point because, like, the I John and I have talked about this, um, and I I think I'm like right in this moment, like, incredibly frustrated at all of these takes that are like phase four is a disaster. Like, nobody knows what's going on. Like, this is all terrible. And it's like, they're just, like, feeling it out. And I'm, like, here for, like, weirder stuff. I am an eternal stan. So, like, I I love, like, a weird property from, like, Jack Kirby's weird brain. (laughs) Thinking about the MCU as, like, willing, not necessarily, like, offering only what they think the fans want but like putting things out there so they can start to develop like something else like that that feels like a generous and important reading of the MCU but like I think that this is part of your point it's making a lot of fans angry and like Mm -hmm. any anything that like troubles the sort of like patriarchal western white male gaze like any of that gets received like pretty poorly
1: I want to introduce a distinction here because I think I'm with both of you but only up to a certain point right like the pushing back against the more toxic or racist or patriarchal or misogynistic elements of the fandom like I totally see what you all are talking about but I remain to be convinced that like on a, beyond that, like on a broader kind of narrative or storytelling or aesthetic level, that it's doing some of that, giving the fans what they need rather than what they want. So I just think that that distinctions mm-hmm. a relevant one mm-hmm. to make with regards mm-hmm. to this. Cause otherwise it's like, I think giving Marvel way too much credit <laughs> um, to like well, take I, it beyond the more circumscribed right, realm right. where I totally see what it is that you two are talking about.
0: But I think also, like, and I think, John, this this is just a refinement of the point that you're making, which I think is, is the, that distinction, I think, is important. What we as scholars, like, want, where we want to push Marvel into, into, like... Thinking what fans need versus like Marvel as a corporation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Like those are different things too. Uh, Yeah.
1: And I guess like, I mean, this is a flippant example, but I'll use it anyway. And that is like, they gave the Marvel fans, like the actual Spider-Man meme in a movie. And like, isn't it nostalgic to have all the Spider-Mans together? Uh, And like, that's what the fans wanted, presumably, right? That's not like pushing them to do something different. Right? That's, like, it's so I would cool. disagree with all
0: that. I, I, I also disagree. I Like, the, yes, they get, like, I, on the one hand, this is not a fair critique of what you just said, because you haven't seen the Spider-Man movie. So, like, I, like, if all they had done was give us the Spider-Man meme in a movie, then mm-hmm. you're absolutely right. If all they had done was give us a movie that is just like that Spider-Man meme, like for three hours, then like, yeah, that's, that's, that's totally only fan service. But the fact of the matter is, is like that movie is about like, like mul- the multiverse and, and possibilities and like, and these other openings and like potentially bringing other characters in. So, like, which is also a thing that the fans wanted, I just but think it is the a multiverse,
1: like, a mechanism mechanisms you like. Wouldn't it be cool if this character and this character or this set of characters... But it is a... Th- but this is
0: the... So, together. like, this is... Yes, but, like, it is a thing that exists in the comics, yeah. right? Yeah. so, no, like... I know. I know. So, I, it's, like, I'm just little- saying, like,
1: let's just give them credit only so far and, like, let's mm-hmm. not fuck up Marvel more than they need to be because they're plenty self-satisfied with themselves already.
2: But I think the other thing to keep in mind with, like, the Spider-Man issue in the Spider-Man meme question is that also that's that plot line of having the multiple Spider-Mans together is an important part of that story arc and that version of Peter Parker because that entire story arc is him struggling to find mentorship and he finally finds it with himself. Dun dun. Yeah.
0: Well and also like the like that the fans want there are like fans that just want the meme And then there are fans who are like, the multiverse is a thing, and we want the multiverse. Like, I think those are different sets of like those are different levels of engagement. I think the problem is like the multiverse can only happen in this way, and it can only like it's only it's only okay to have three Spider Men and like and to do it in this very particular way and to police the way that these things happen i think that's the like that's the the pushing back against like what the fans like need versus what the fans think they want right it's the it's the like pushing back against the policing impulse and i do like i this is my read of phase 4 is like there's a lot of weird shit happening. It's not totally clear where we're going right now, though I think it's like going to become clear next week, like when Kevin Feige like makes a million announcements about like fantastic forecasting and like more X-Men stuff. But like it's not totally clear. And I think like what the fans think they want is they want total and utter clarity and they want control. And this is like something that we see like with Star Wars fans all the time, mm-hmm. like right um and i think what the fans need is to like let go a little bit and and like see where it goes like i think there's a version of that happening here and this also
2: leads into the next point i've noted for being in my corner also is like the idea of fans being in control they they could just go do this um this is my plug for everyone to go on archive of our own i think a lot of the this is Entire Shade. The white, toxic, straight fanboys could really learn from, from reading a couple fanfics. Um, it's it's easy. To, it's very easy to navigate Archive of Our Own. It's entirely fan-built. You can do whatever you want there. Some of the tags there are weird as shit. Um, <laughs> like, and they're great. Um, and you can get into it. And you can see a lot about how the women and the queer folks, um, or, you know, fem-identifying folks, um, whatever way you want to slice it, um, are doing that's so important and integral is that they're doing what they want. They're remixing things. They're using, um, perhaps, um, and maybe a generous give, um, Sherry Stenberg's, um, feminist repurposing of characters (laughs) Um, to kind of tell the stories that they want to see out of the MCU, which I think is the cool thing that Miss Marvel is doing is that it's also acknowledging that sort of existing thing. But like when I first was getting into the Marvel fan fiction universe, after watching phase one and getting into phase two, we were seeing what the, the fans wanted, which was like the big thing was like the, um, the domestic Avengers. Like they all live in Stark tower together and <laughs> get into shenanigans um, and have like interesting things happen versus, and like some, so like one that I think is really great, which is, um, like a girl and her taser, which is, um, domestic <laughs> adventures through the eyes of Darcy Lewis. Um, I
0: love it. Darcy. This
2: is, yeah. Darcy Justice Lewis. is for her. Darcy. Um, also, I'll, I'll, make sure that gets linked in the notes if anyone's interested. Amazing. That's a great fan, it's a great series of fanfics. Um, Or um, 30 seconds of Mindless Panic, which is, um, you know, the real person alternate universe, which is what if all these beloved characters were high schoolers in the drama club? (laughs) (laughs) And these were just like shows they put on? Mm -hmm. Um, no, it's less about the shows they put on, but more about their development. It also ships controversially. Well, I mean, at the time, it was not a controversial ship, but very much into like the Steve Tony ship of like they're definitely gay for each other. Versus, Oh, I mean, I'm like the
0: most on board for Steve Bucky. Like, oh, so, yeah, Stucky forever. It's the best. Yeah,
2: <laughs> um, I will say the the girl in her taser is Darcy. Steve did. What did okay. not initially sign on board for that. Loved it more than I thought I would.
0: All right. Well, we're going to have to take so a look So it's kind that. of
2: interesting also to see how things are convoluting and how now I'm interested to see what happens come Kevin Feige's announcement with X-Men and um, Fantastic Four because right now um, a quick scan of the MCU AO3 slots and tags are all pulling in the Fantastic Four and how they really want the Fantastic Four involved interesting yeah interesting my yeah. Current, and, the uh, current fan fiction i'm writing is pulling for fantastic four to be involved
0: oh my god well can we plug your fanfic also sure it's the, called i gave it an absurd title everybody it's how to how to crash symbols
1: <laughs> symbols with a c or symbols with an s oh symbols like the, the okay. instrument so how to crash symbols um,
0: i also was like what save, kind of symbols are we talking <laughs> about?
2: yeah crash symbols <laughs> save the world and um not make a. I'm not getting the title right, but anyways, the concept of this fanfic is that um, it's a little bit alternate universe. The blip did not last as long as we intended, and um, okay. there's one throwaway line in Homecoming where MJ says um, to the rest of the academic decathlon team, "Like Peter quit the marching band, and I, I was in marching band as a youth. John has heard many, <laughs> many a tale, and so this is Peter Parker I mean, goes okay. to marching band. Um, and goes
0: he's in marching band. He goes <laughs> to, to here. Dance. Dance. Oh, my God. As someone who went to swim camp and was in high school when the American Pie movies came out, the, like, the one time at band camp, like freezing? I mean, I was dramatic. in high school between 2008 and 2011, and one time at
2: band camp was my life. <laughs> okay. Amazing. Like, Amazing. There may be a chapter in this story that reflects real-life things that happened at the band camp I attended.
1: <laughs> I'm
0: going to read this. Um, and when you come on next time, we're going to talk about it. <laughs> we can do that. <laughs> Amazing. Anything else to to get to plug or to get out in, in Regan Corner here? Oh,
2: I have my very first proper publication coming out in the next few weeks. Um, it is called Dwindling, and you can find it in the journal Multimodal Rhetorics.
1: Yes. Oh
0: my God! And
2: we will be, link that as
0: well.
1: Yeah, and that'll be also on. I'm sure at least mine, and maybe now also Danielle's Twitter. I'm, I I could see you getting an RT from. I
0: already followed Daniel. Danielle on Twitter. There you go. <laughs> yeah.
1: <I'm
0: on> <laughs> I was like, who is this person? And I was like, oh, I know who this person is. It <laughs> <me, and>
1: <laughs> There's also such temp- a weird a temporality thing of our own. This isn't coming out for several weeks. Okay. So. Well, yeah. we'll we'll make sure it all stitches together. Got
0: it. Very nicely. I think that we have come to the end of this episode. Yes. Regan, thank you so much for Cheers. being here, for for blowing our minds about fanfic, and also for being on my side of the MCU <laughs> debates.
1: Yeah, I mean, definitely. Like, I do feel bad for, like, dragging you into, like, mine and Danielle's v- v- over and over again, recur- eternally recurring argument.
2: Um, <laughs> we so. can exist in a world where you're both right. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: think,
2: think that's right. Not the MCU. There are
0: shitty things about it. Oh, I think that's right. And I think this podcast is making me realize, or I tend to, like, overlook the shitty a lot of the time in like pop culture that I'm enjoying and doing this podcast with John is reminding me that like that's actually not like the a way that to always be so I do appreciate that even though I will violently reject it on every episode we do Great,
1: perfect. <laughs> I'd like to say that I had several snarky lines ready to go that I did not use so I will
0: pass John, your restraint is honestly amazing. As so. I keep saying, I'm
1: exceedingly generous in the <laughs>
0: podcasting
1: that we're doing together. It's really a like giant feat and accomplishment in my life. It's, like up there near the top, top ten, number nine.
0: Oh my god! Well, thank you again, Regan. Thanks as always to producer Amy. Next up in the feed, if you are less interested in John and I bickering over (laughs) cultural properties and more interested in us just diving in, um, next up in the feed on Thursday will be American Season 2 Episode 9, Marshall Eagle, with a returning guest, um, an MCU Americans crossover for the real ones out there. And then next week on Tuesday, you'll get Moon Knight Episode 4, The Tomb. And thanks so much for joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great
1: Books, the TV podcast. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast created by Danielle Hanley and John McMahon and, indirectly, producer Amy. You can find us on Twitter at NotGreatBooksTV. You can email us at NotGreatBooksTV at gmail.com. If you have comments or questions that we might potentially read and respond to on air, subscribe, download, rate, review us, tell your friends to find us at Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and Amazon Music, and Google Podcasts. We would like to thank Less FM for ElectroTrend 60s, which is the music that you heard at the beginning and you are hearing right now. Until next time. Go play some racquetball.